0: I would like to begin this morning by summarizing Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Briefly summarizing those four verses that we're going to look at today so that you can see how everything fits together. So if you haven't yet, please open up your Bible or one near you. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Here is my attempt to summarize these four verses and to help you see how these verses connect. With each other. Paul begins chapter 3, you see, with a conditional statement. An if-then statement. If this, then this. If then, you have been raised with Christ. So that's the condition. If that's true, then, seek the things that are above where Christ is Seated at the right hand of God. That's instruction number one. And now here's instruction number two from Paul. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. And then in verses 3 and 4, we have the ground or the reason for the instructions that Paul just gave. For... And that word is how you know that this is the foundation of the instruction. For you have died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. And so verse 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. So that is how verses 1, 2, 3, and 4 connect with each other. And if I could now in one sentence summarize everything we just read, this is how I would say it. Paul is saying this, so the reason you should, if you have been raised with Christ, seek things above and set your minds on things above is that you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Let me say that one sentence summary Of our four verses, one more time. So the reason you should, if you have been raised with Christ, seek things above and set your minds on things above, is that you have died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. So today, the way I'd like to preach through this is to ask ourselves, you and me, to ask ourselves for. Questions in light of our study of these four verses. Four questions we'll ask ourselves, but before I get any farther along, let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, thank you for uh, another day that you have made, another day that you have your worship and your glory planned, and we are looking forward to being a part of it, God. So help us today to lean not on our own understanding, to lean not on our own plans, but to be flexible with You and Your will. pray that we would respond to everything that happens today with grace so that You would be glorified. I pray that Your Word would be good for the Christians who are here today. pray that all those who are believers would be encouraged by Your Word, would be challenged by Your Word, would be uh, fed by Your Word. God, I also pray for those who are here today who are not yet believers. Those who do not know You. And God, we ask that Your truth would prevail over their unbelief. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1a. We'll take it just a bit at a time. If then you have been raised with Christ, that is the necessary condition in this if-then statement that Paul makes. What is the condition? Well, you have to be raised with Christ. And if you do not meet that condition, so that is not true for you, then you don't get to apply all of this to your life. You don't get to skip that part and just move on to applying this and acting like a Christian. This is the necessary condition, you and I must be raised with Christ. So what does it mean to be raised with Christ? Well, one way of answering the question, what does it mean to be raised with Christ, is it means to be a Christian. So being raised with Christ is a reality for every Christian. When you became a Christian, you were raised with Christ, and if you haven't been raised with Christ, then you are not a Christian. So being raised with Christ is not some level of Christianity that you reach at some later point in time. It's not this greater degree of spirituality or maturity. No, when you become a Christian, you become raised with Christ. So Paul's condition is you have to be a Christian. But I'm so glad that Paul says it this way. I'm really glad that in verse 1, he doesn't say, if you are a Christian, and then goes on to explain the things that we as Christians are to do, because Christian, I think, is a really confused term today. So I'm glad that he qualifies it. I think you could ask 10 different people what it means to be a Christian, and you really could get 10 different answers. So the way he says the condition is much more specific. He gives a description of a Christian. A Christian is one who has been raised with Christ. Because it's not like finding out that a person says they're a Christian or a school says it's Christian or an album says it's Christian. It's not like that tells you anything about that person or about that school or about that musician It really doesn't. In our day and age, you need to have a bunch of follow-up questions. You have to have a bunch of other questions loaded and ready to ask if you're really going to understand and get an answer to the question in your mind of is this person really a Christian? And the problem could be summarized as just nominal Christianity. People are Christian by name only. And that's rampant today. A lot of nominal Christianity in our society. So, you can ask if you want to know if someone meets Paul's condition, are you a Christian? Or you can ask, as Paul says, have you been raised with Christ? Now you know those two questions will get you very different answers. You can ask a bunch of people, are you a Christian? And you might have a lot of people who say, yes, sir. Yes, I am. But you can ask them, have you been raised with Christ? That might weird some people out. But you mean the same thing, I hope. Because a Christian is someone who has been raised with Christ. So that's the necessary condition. In other words, the seeking and the setting. Those are the verbs Paul is going to use in his instruction. The seeking and the setting that Paul is about to charge his listeners to do, that is Christian work the seeking and the setting that Paul is charging people to do that is Christian work. And when I say it's Christian work, I mean that you can't do it unless you're a Christian, and you shouldn't do it unless you're a Christian. You shouldn't do this work if you are not a Christian. This is what nominal Christianity can be, right? It can be people who are doing Christian things, looking at all the imperatives of the Bible, the instructions of the Bible. This is how I'm supposed to think, and this is how, and I'm, I go to church, and I sing the songs, and I give money, and I serve in this ministry, and I'm a good person, and I'm a good neighbor, and I do these good deeds. But that doesn't necessarily make you a Christian, right? And so you first need to be raised with Christ. And then once you're raised with Christ, now we get on to this work of seeking and setting. So we challenge people to come to Christ. We don't just challenge people to act like Christ and do Christian things. That's why we share the Gospel with them. We want them to come to Christ. We want them to be raised with Christ. And then you get the instructions and the imperatives. This is kind of like skipping the coming to Christ and moving on to following all the Christian rules. It's kind of like a baseball player because baseball is on my mind a lot right now. So this illustration came to me. It's like a baseball player who loops the ball into shallow center field and then instead of running to first base, sprints over the pitcher's mound and slides into second base. You're like, what about first base? And then he goes to third. And then he goes home. And the next hit, to second, to third, to home. And this is what nominal Christianity does. It does the Christian things. It goes to church. It sings the songs. It serves in the ministry. But they never went to first base. You never went to first base. You were never raised with Christ. And you've got to be raised with Christ first. And so we don't want you to just run to second base. We don't want you to just start acting like a Christian, behaving like a Christian. Because then you'll do that, and you'll think that you went to first base your whole life, and you won't find out until you stand in front of Jesus. Because he's in the stands, if you will, looking at you, going, What are you doing? Isn't the same true? Have you ever seen this in a baseball game where someone gets a hit? They round the bases. They maybe even slide into home. And the umpire says no. Everyone's excited thinking that he scored. He slid into home plate. He rounded the bases. What did he not do? He missed a base. He missed a base. So what happens? He's disqualified. The run does not count. So you shouldn't move on to the seeking and the setting unless you're first raised with Christ. It's the condition. And you can't. You can't move on to the seeking and the setting unless you've been raised with Christ. I mean, you can try. And you can do it for a while. And you can use your own strength. And you can grit your teeth. And you can white knuckle this. And you can act like a Christian. Maybe for a really long time. But you cannot do this. You cannot do this apart from Christ. You cannot please God. What do the Scriptures say? Without faith, it is impossible to please God. So this is a necessary condition. So question number one, I said we'd ask four questions, is have you been raised with Christ? That's primary That is ultimate. That is the necessary condition here. Have you been raised with Christ? It's a more precise question. A more helpful question than are you a Christian? Have you been raised with Christ? Let me spell that out for us. Has your life been temporally and eternally revolutionized because Jesus raised from the dead? If yes, then you have been raised with Christ. If no, then you have not been raised with Christ. What does the resurrection of Christ mean to you? Well, if you've been raised with Christ, then your life, because of Jesus raising from the dead, your life has been temporally in the here and now and eternally revolutionized. Not changed. Revolutionized. That means radical and fundamental change. That has happened to a Christian. And that is what it means to be raised with Christ. Are you fundamentally different? Not just I don't watch the movies I used to watch and I don't hang out with the same people I used to hang out with and I listen to different music and I don't say those words anymore. There we go. Going straight to second base without first base. No, have you been fundamentally changed from the inside out? Are the benefits of the resurrection of Christ your benefits? Have they flowed down to you? So all that is what we mean when we say, are you a Christian? And this is the necessary condition, Paul says, if and only if you have been raised with Christ. Now, a brief side note that I think will be helpful and will answer a question that I often get asked as pastor of this church. The side note has to do with this reality that in a day where notional and nominal Christianity is rampant, and there are many who believe they're a Christian or have been taught they're a Christian, not even necessarily their fault, but they're in actuality not Christians because that is so rampant. We can't take in this day and age someone's profession of faith for granted. And we can't assume that just because someone says that they are a Christian, that they are a Christian. If we don't help people. We don't help people when we just take their word for it. When it comes to their Christianity. So I would ask you this question. Have you ever thought about the upside of a society growing more hostile toward Christ and Christianity? Now this requires extreme optimism. And hear me out, because that sounds like I'm advocating for a society to become more and more hateful towards Christ and Christianity. That's not what I'm saying. But have you ever thought, I think about this, definitely glass half full, have you ever thought about the upside of a society growing more hostile toward Christ and Christianity? Here's what I'm getting at. As a society's hatred for Christ and Christianity increases, nominal Christianity decreases as all worldly incentives for professing Christ are gradually taken away. That's the upside. As a society increases in its hatred for Christ and Christianity, nominal Christianity decreases in that society because all the worldly incentives for saying I'm a Christian are taken away. Now, I think though our culture is maybe growing more and more hostile towards Christ and Christianity, I really do think still today that our society is relatively friendly towards Christ and Christianity, especially if you watch and read the news and understand what's going on in other parts of the world. This is relatively a pretty friendly place to be a Christian. And so, there are many worldly incentives for being a Christian. Now here's the question that I get asked as a pastor of this church that I hope is answered here. If you've wondered, this point is exactly why we as a church labor over professions of faith. This is why we are so slow to baptize people. This is why we are so slow to make people members. And I know that people have grown frustrated here. I've heard that complaint before. And often there's biblical basis for that complaint when someone says, I don't feel like we're following the example of Acts where it appears that most baptisms occurred immediately following conversion. And we would have to concede to that. That does seem to be the clear example in the book of Acts. There's not this long period of time or this long period of evaluation Someone becomes a Christian and they are baptized. But let me connect the point I've just made to that practice at our church. A first generation Christian, as all the Christians were in the book of Acts, right? A first generation Christian in Roman-occupied first century Palestine had zero worldly incentives. Zero worldly incentives. Saying I'm a Christian and proclaiming to know and love and serve Christ in the first century puts yourself immediately into fierce persecution. There's no worldly incentive. It was not friendly toward Christianity. So we'd simply say, friends, this is not the first century anymore. This is not the first century. The church has never just taken people's word for it. The church has never done that. So evaluation is necessary. Evaluation is necessary. Back to our question. Have you been raised with Christ? Is all your reliance on Christ today? If not, as we say at the end of every service, turn to Him and be saved. Stop relying on yourself and start relying on Christ. Grow in your understanding of the good news of Jesus Christ. The Gospel. As you grow in your understanding, we would charge you to say, believe this Gospel. Turn, forsake your sin and your self-reliance and put all of your trust in Christ. Then and only then will you be raised with Christ. So that's the condition. If then you have been raised with Christ, then and only then do you get to follow God's instructions in the following verses. So, what are they? Let me read verse 1b and verse 2. Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God set your minds on things that are above not on things that are on the earth two very similar instructions but there is a slight difference the first verb seek you see that in verse 1b that first verb seek has to do with what we desire what we seek after it has to do with our what our hearts are pursuing what our hearts are after. The second word in verse 2, the second verb, set, as in set your minds, has to do with what we think. So, what Paul is saying in verse 1b and 2, his instruction is desire what is above and think about what is above. Say that to yourself. So, Paul is calling me as a Christian to desire what is above, and to think about what is above. Above where? What does Paul mean when he says above? He's not saying seek birds or airplanes or clouds or stars. He's talking about which above? Does he tell us here? Does he give us a hint? In verse 1, what what above is he talking about? Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So Paul is saying, seek the things that are where Jesus is. That's getting us warmer. Seek the things that are where Jesus is is, and where is Jesus right now? Where is Jesus right now? Sometimes I will hear Christians talk about Jesus being here or there. I'm not sure if they mean that. I don't know if they mean the Spirit of Christ because that would be different. The Spirit of Christ that indwells every believer. It's one place the Spirit of Christ is. But we're talking about Christ literally physically, where is Jesus right now? Is He invisibly roaming the earth? Does He pick a different church to attend every Sunday? Is He in your living room sometimes? Is he? No, Jesus, Scripture tells us. We're told here. He is literally, physically, right now. I mean right now in time. Jesus is at the right hand of God the Father. And He's actually sitting down. Jesus right now is seated at the right hand of God. And that's the above that Paul is telling Christians to desire what is there and think about what is there. Some verses that talk about where Jesus is right now. Ephesians 4.10. I'll just rattle off some of these references. Ephesians 4.10 says that Jesus, the One who descended, is also the One who ascended, and now He is far above all heavens. And there God the Father, according to Philippians 2.9, has exalted Him and given Him the name that is above all other names. And then Romans 8.34, He is sitting at the right hand of God where He is, Romans 8 tells us, interceding for us. And then we learn in 1 Peter 3.22 that there is He is seated at the right hand of God interceding for us. He has angels and authorities and all powers subjected to Him. So that's who we're talking about. That's the King we're talking about. That's the dominion we're talking about. Jesus right now is at the right hand of God. And I love this. We don't have time to get into this this morning as much as I would like to, but He's sitting down so all the ruling and all the authority that Jesus has he doesn't even stand up which I think is awesome awesome sitting down the right hand of God what's he doing oh just ruling the universe seated at the right hand of God As God makes His enemies, His what? Yeah, His ottoman. His footstool. His footrest. Paul is saying get your heart, get your mind there. So the second question we ask, and i'm just getting this from the second part of verse 1 where paul says seek the things that are above where he's saying set your heart on the unseen not the seen on the eternal not the temporal second question what do you and i desire most to evaluate how am i doing with this construction that i'm being given what do you desire most what is Paul saying you and I should desire most. What does the psalmist say in Psalm 73, 25, and 26? Whom have I in heaven but You? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides You. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God, He is the strength of my heart and He is my portion forever. What do you desire most? Matthew Henry said, For heaven and earth are contrary one to the other, and a supreme regard to both is inconsistent. And the prevalence of our affection to one will proportionably weaken and abate our affection to the other. And this is why Jesus said as much, do you remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, he said it first, Paul says it second, but Jesus said there, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you, which by the way is Christ's cure there for worry and anxiety, which I've heard a few of you struggle with. Seek first the kingdom of God. What are your affections set on? What is your heart set on? What do you desire most? It's a good question for us to ask ourselves and a third question. And we're getting this from the second part of Paul's instruction verse two, where he said, "Set your minds on things that are above." So the third question is, what do you think about most? What do you think about most? it may be helpful first to ask ourselves as a very interesting, unprecedented society whether we set our minds on anything at all. When I picture setting my mind, I've been helped to picture a sort of bear trap. And setting your mind is closing on something that I'm going to think about and I'm going to meditate on. But there is a temptation and, and, and an overwhelming ease in our day and age to just have the bear trap just open and just have information just pouring and pouring and pouring in. But you actually never close on anything. So maybe a preliminary question is, do we have the discipline to set our minds, if we understand what Paul is talking about, do we actually set our minds on anything? In an age, this is how I set it to help myself because I struggle with this, in an age where there is so much information interrupting me constantly, am I disciplined enough to actually set my mind on Anything. Can I think about anything? I mean, and this is one of my big problems. This is my my iPhone. I love this phone. I hate this phone. This is a love hate relationship. Any information I want out there, right? Any information I can have in seconds in the palm of my hand. That is very attractive. That is extremely hard to deny myself that kind of access to information. So I just I just do it. But it's not just stuff going out of this thing, it's the stuff that comes into this thing and gets to me, right? I don't know how you use this, but I use this thing for a lot. So I got text messages that come, information just interrupting my day. I've got emails, I've got calendar appointments, I've got baseball scores. I've got weather updates. I've got budget alerts. I let my boys play games on it. So I'm told when my clan needs a leader or when my dragons are breeding. (laughs) So all this information is just constantly coming to me and it interrupts me. It doesn't say, excuse me. It just makes a loud noise and just enters into my life whenever it wants to. Those of you who know me know, my phone is is gagged. It's muzzled. I, no volume comes out of my phone. I just have to silence the thing because I'm just too distracted. So am I, am I able? This is this is just my... I'm just bringing you into my frustration. And maybe you all, I know some of you guys. you can multitask better. You can think about more things at once. So I'll give this. Some of you are much better at this than I am. But my struggle is actually closing my mind on anything because I just have so much coming down the chute that I can't. I can't just grab one thing and think about it. I think about it for a few seconds, and then the next thing, and then the next thing, and then the next thing. So I'm just, just ask yourself: Am I setting my mind on things, or am I just setting? my ears and eyes on things. That would be my concern as your pastor. I love this tool, but I really wonder what the repercussions of it are going to be for Christianity. A great article to read. I commend this article to you if you wanted to think more about this. Put out by desiring... God And the article was called, and I thought it was the best one, and I've read a t- lot of stuff on this information age uh, stumbling block. And the article is called, Six Ways Your Phone Is Changing You. And I commend it to you. Six Ways Your Phone Is Changing You. So back to our question, do, do I really think about things I need to think about Do I really meditate? And if I do, is it the things that are just coming into my life that aren't from above but are from below? What is it I think about the most? Here's some verses to remind us of the importance of this. Philippians 3.19 said, Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. So, I do not want my mind set on earthly things. That verse, that startles me. That verse scares me. Because here are those whose end is destruction, their God is their belly, they glory in their shame. And what do they have in common? Their minds are set on earthly things. I don't want my mind to close on earthly things. Remember the story of when Jesus was in the garden and His captors came to take Him and Peter, Peter who was an extremely emotional, anxious guy. you remember what he did? He jumps up and chops the guy's ear off. He wasn't aiming for the ear, of course. Trying to defend Jesus. And and Jesus, what you think, if you're reading it like with me the first time, you're thinking, go Peter! That's awesome! He's defending Jesus. And Jesus... Gets upset with them. In fact, he calls him, do you remember what he called him? Satan? He said, get behind me, Satan. But then he addresses Peter's problem. Remember what he said? He said, You are a hindrance to me right now. Why? For you are not setting your mind on the things of God but on the things of man. And that's exactly what Paul is telling the Colossians and you and me not to do. Don't set your mind on the things of man. Set your mind on things above. Or Philippians 4.8, you've heard this verse. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Or 1 Peter 1.13, Therefore, prepare your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Your mind, is it not clear, is a war zone. And we cannot just lay down with our minds. Romans 8.6 says it positively and negatively probably most succinctly, for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. So what do you think about the most? Believe it or not, John Owen in the 17th century who did a lot of work on spiritual mindedness, he posed a very similar question to the people of his day, only he worded it this way, and I thought this was great. He challenged people with this question. What do you think about when you are not thinking about anything in particular? That was a revealing question for me to answer. Because you're never not thinking. I'm sure you all understand that. You're never not thinking. So when you're not focused and thinking about something in particular, what are you thinking about? Where does your mind go to? So Paul is challenging us here. I think his challenge, if I understand him correctly, is think about Christ all the time. Relate everything to Christ and the Gospel. Everything. You can see why men and women who loved God in church history thought, I need to go to a monastery. But that's, that's the motive behind it. It's verses like this. I need to be thinking about Christ all the time. So what is, a, I would say, an easy way to try and fix that, because it doesn't fix it, is to go to a monastery. I'll just, I will, I'll live out of the world. Uh, I'll just detach myself from the world and that's all I'll do is just say prayers and read the Bible and think all day long. But that's not what Paul is talking about. Clearly, because the whole rest of his letter is practical instructions for how to live your life. How to be a Christian at work. How to be a Christian mom. How to be a Christian dad. How to be a Christian husband. How to be a Christian wife. So he's going to talk about living this life in this world. But the discipline is to at the same time be always thinking about Jesus. And relating everything to the Gospel. That's the challenge. He's not talking about just some sort of spiritual spacing out. We just walk around like we're in a fog with our head in the clouds and we're lost touch with reality. That's not what Paul's talking about. Clearly. But he is challenging Christians to think always on Christ. He's saying get your heart and get your minds in heaven. Get them Above. Verse 3 and 4. Verses 3 and 4. Here's the reason for what Paul has challenged us to do. Remember our summary at the beginning? So the reason you should, if you've been raised with Christ, seek things above and set your mind on things above is that it's what we have here. You have died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Read verses 3 and 4 with me for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God, when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Paul is saying this, set your heart and mind on things above because you are above. Not that that's any more simple to understand but i can't get around that that is what paul is saying here and elsewhere his argument is set your heart and mind on things above because in some way you are above i mean is nobody he says he says your life right now where is your life it is hidden with Christ in God. Where is Christ? He's above. He just told us that. He says that Christ, where is Christ? In heaven, above, is your life. In verse 4, he also says that when Christ appears, you will appear with Him because you are in Christ. So seek after these things that are above because you are above. Ephesians 2.6 says it even more clearly. Have you ever really wondered and thought about what Paul means in Ephesians 2.6 where he says that God has raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Could he say that any more clearly? Where is the Christian? You are above. God has hidden you In Jesus who is above. God has seated you with Jesus who is above. John MacArthur tries to make sense of this by saying your inside lives in heaven and your outside lives here. Which frankly didn't help me much. I was still confused. I'll tell you what, I still am confused. I think this is something to set our minds on right here. What does this mean, Paul? Well, we can get somewhere with it. He says, I have died, first of all. He says that again. He said that before. I have died. And we know that Paul means that the Christian is dead to the world. Is what it means. Paul said in Galatians 6.14, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the Paul said the world has been crucified to me and I have been crucified to the world. He's saying I'm dead to the world. I'm dead to the world. I'm not looking for happiness here. I'm not looking for approval here. I'm not looking for comfort here. I'm not looking for salvation here and my affections ultimately are not here. I'm dead to the world. It does not have the sway over me it once has. So you're You're dead to the world. So there's something freed up, I guess, to be with Jesus in heaven. That I've died to the world. And then he says that now my life is hidden with Christ in God. In other words, I am concealed and safe and secure in Christ. I'm hidden with Christ. What does it mean to be hidden with Christ? And I would want you to think about the safety that sometimes comes from being hidden. Think of a time in your life, maybe a time in a friend's life. Or maybe you think about some of the history during World War II. You think about being hidden meaning being safe. You know we say things like, and Scripture says things like, the world can't do anything to a Christian. The Christian is indomitable. Christian, the world has no sway over the Christian. There is no ultimate price that the world can make a Christian pay. I mean, the worst that can happen, right, is that you can take my, you can run me over with your car this afternoon. Please don't. But that's the worst thing that you can do is to take my life. But then Paul, like he says in Philippians 1.21, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. How frustrating for those who wanted to make Paul suffer for following Jesus. What are you going to do? For me to live is Christ. You want to kill me? Just gain. It just gets better for me. Go ahead. Please. What do you do with a guy like that? A Christian is indomitable. A Christian, we are more than conquerors. That's what this is talking about. Okay, this verse here helps us understand how that's possible. And that is that you are here right now, but you are also above. You are hidden with Christ in God and no one can get to you. No one. You are concealed and safe And secure in Christ. So therefore, Paul says in verse 4, when Christ, and I love this phrase, who is your life appears. So Jesus is coming back someday. And for now, Christian, He is your life. You see his challenge to think about Christ all the time, to relate everything to Christ? It's another way of saying that. Christ is your life. Christ, Christian, is not a part of of your life. He is not the most important thing in your life. Christ is your life. He's everything. Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. We use that expression when we're talking about somebody who's really devoted to something, right? Oh, work is, is that guy's life. Or athletics is her life. Or that relationship is his life. This is how it should be for a Christian. When Christ, who is your life, appears, what will happen? then you also will appear with Him in glory. So if you have been raised with Christ, then Christ is your life. So Paul is challenging us to set our heart and mind on things above because you are above. That's His reason. That's His foundation. It is who you are right now in Christ. And as you understand who you are right now in Christ, so you will be equipped to set your mind and heart on things above. That's his his argument. So the fourth question, do you understand this position of yours in Christ? Do you understand that you are hidden in Christ? Do you understand what it means to be hidden in Christ? I would say a little bit. I do. I, I, I understand this. And this transcends the way I normally think and it's not as tangible as the things of this world that I can see and feel and touch. and but I I do understand this a little bit, that I really am hidden in Christ right now. But I have so much more to understand. This is why Paul says, Christian, get your heart in heaven. Get your mind in heaven and not on the things below. One man wrote who knew Robert Murray McShane, a Scottish pastor who was known for his personal holiness, was known for his communion with God, was known for his devotion to God when asked as a pastor, what is the most important thing you do for your church? And his answer was to maintain my personal holiness. Her man walked with God. Died in his late 20s but a man who walked with God and a friend said this of him, and here's a man whose heart and head is in heaven. He said, the man of whom I speak, that's Robert Murray McShane, seems to have got up to the full height and to have entered into the secret places of the holiness of God. And then he talks about the effect of his life. When he preached the Gospel, you could see strong men, hard and stern, melt like wax before the fire. Their breasts would swell and heave as if they would burst, and the whole place became a place of weepers. Because his reason in knowing this man was that he seems to have got up to the full height and to have entered into the secret places of the holiness of God. It's what Paul is talking about here. He lived this life. He loved his friends. He loved his family. He pastored his church. He wasn't detached from reality. And yet his heart and his head were in the clouds. He walked with the Lord all the time. And it was evident to those around him And I wonder if some of you have experienced this. And I wonder if you're like me and you have and you you want more of this. Or you've had those moments or those seasons where you're concerned with the things of God. And you're affected by the things of God, and your your emotions are engaged, and your your sensitivity to sin is heightened and your your boldness and courage is is fueled and and motivated. And if you're like me though, you have these moments or these times and then you try desperately to hang on to them. So the point now that when I when I when I'm in that and my head and my heart is where it needs to be, I so know what it feels like for that to dissipate that I start to get anxious as soon as I have it. And I want my heart and mind to stay there. And I'll pray, God, just help me to stay here. Help me to to stay here with my heart and mind on You. I'm seeing things rightly. I'm seeing things differently. And I fear waking up tomorrow morning and it's just back to distance. So help me, God, to set my heart on things that are above. To set my mind on things that are above. and I don't want the cares of this world to steal it away. I want the providence to come. The circumstances to come. I want them to hit. I know they're going to hit Hard, but I don't want to be swayed. I don't want to be knocked down. I want to be thinking about Christ the entire time. I want to be relating everything to the Gospel. And I want to be personally holy and pleasing to You no matter what is taking place. That's my heart. And that's my prayer. And it comes and goes. And it comes and goes. And I'm hot and I'm cold. And I'm hot and I'm cold. Excited and I mourn. Excited and I mourn. Okay, it brings me back to Christ. Seems like I'm either fully enjoying Christ or thanking Him for His mercy again. That's just like every second of every day. Just in those moments, just alternating. But I do know, and in conclusion, I would pass this on to you. But I do know uh, uh, the secret, because <laughs> God makes it clear. The secret to having my heart and my mind where it needs to be—it is no secret, I guess, because it's all over the place. But but here's here's what it is. Are you ready? It is God's Word. It is God's Word. Unplug yourself from God's Word. Unplug yourself from the heavens. Unplug yourself from Christ. Listen, everything, and I mean this, everything I know of God the Father, everything I know of God the Son, and every little thing I know of God the Spirit, I have learned from God's Word. And that's it. How do I get my heart and my mind up there? How else will you do this apart from God's holy Word taught to us by God's Holy Spirit? The most basic way to grow in grace is to read the Word of God, to study the Word of God, of God to hang on the Word of God. And this has been the testimony of everyone whose heart and head was in heaven. Everyone. God's Word. God's Word. It's Paul's testimony. It's the psalmist's testimony. I rise before dawn and cry out for help. I hope in your words. Ponyan said, he who runs from God in the morning will seldom find him the rest of the day. See, that's what I can fall into. So another way of answering that question or asking that question, do you understand your position in Christ? Do you understand that you are hidden with Christ? Another way to ask that is, do you love God's Word And do you read and study and hang on God's word? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, would you please help us to set our hearts and our minds on the things that are above where we are hidden with Christ in you. God, help us not to take our days for granted, our moments for granted. God, I pray that we would seek to always have our thoughts on You and our desires on You. And I pray that we would not do this well for a bit of our day and then somehow reward ourselves with ignoring You the rest of the day. Show us our sin, God. Convict us, please. That we would close our minds on Your Word. so We do love You. We thank You for the work of Your Spirit here this morning and pray that it would just be the beginning this day. And we pray You would be honored and glorified as You are working for the good of Your people. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.